Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So blessed are those who mourn. Remember that Jesus is presented in Matthew as the Messiah King prophesied in the Old Testament who has now come to save and reign over his people. This saving rule is called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And when Christ rules in men's hearts, salvation comes. Their lives are radically changed. They repent. And King Jesus gently and lovingly reigns over them. So the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, are simply a description of the life of salvation, along with a call to live it out. They declare the joys and the character of the Christian life. So it is meant to be heard and preached and lived out now. Or put another way, all of those who are in the kingdom of grace obey King Jesus. For them, Jesus is Lord is no mere slogan. It is life. Now it's true, their obedience to that king is imperfect. And it is faced with enemies and threats. It is an incomplete obedience because while the kingdom or the rule of Christ in their lives has begun, it isn't here in fullness. But remember, when Christ returns again one day, every one of the king's enemies will be overthrown and then there will be unmixed righteousness, peace, and joy. So Christians live in the already of grace, even as we wait for the not fully yet of glory. Now let's look at this second beatitude, and I'll be following the same outline as the first. Uh, I suspect after a few more weeks, you'll have the very simple outline memorized because you'll be probably hearing it about a dozen times. All right? It begins this way. Notice that First, what Jesus does is he ascribes blessedness. He makes a pronouncement of happiness. Jesus the King attributes blessedness to a group of people. Blessed are. Now remember that this word blessed means to be approved of God and therefore happy. It is to be in a known state of covenant well-being with God. Rather than still being under the curse, those who are pronounced blessed are people with salvation. In other words, these people are in God's favor and they know it. So Jesus the King declares them blessed in this ascription, this announcement. That's our first point. Jesus ascribes blessedness. But secondly, and where we will spend most of our time, notice that Jesus describes the blessed person's character and condition. Blessed are those who mourn. 
The word translated mourn is a strong word. It means to lament or to wail. In the parallel thought in Luke 6, Jesus says, blessed are those who weep. So what Christ has in mind when he uses this word mourn is not some small sadness, not a minor disappointment of life, not some quickly passing shadow of soul. No, this describes a great grief. Blessed are those who mourn. Well, what kind of grief is this? It is grief over sin and its attendant miseries. What kind of grief is this? This grief is grief over sin and its attendant or its accompanying miseries. Why do I say this? Remember, all of these pronounced blessings are spiritual in nature. And they don't have so much to do with earthly happiness as being right with God. The blessedness is the restoration between God and a man. And so this mourning must fit into that pattern. Remember, the first beatitude was poverty of spirit. Approved by God and happy is the man who understood he had nothing in his hand to bring to God to gain his favor. He had nothing that he could do, nothing he could bring to restore the ruined relationship he had with God. That's poverty of spirit. In other words, the man knew he was morally bankrupt before God. This was a poverty not of an economic nature, it was moral and spiritual. And so this morning must be the same. The man who knows he is separated from God by his sins, he grieves over them. He strongly feels them and at times even weeps because of them. There are many examples of this idea in the scriptures. Let me give you a few. In 1 Corinthians 5.2, Paul charges the Corinthian church with being arrogant. They thought well of themselves. But Paul says, how can you? There's a man acting morally worse among you. Worse even than the pagans. Now, if any of you know anything about the sexual immorality of the Roman era, it makes even the way our nation acts right now look puritanical. And in fact, one of the grossest places in all of the Roman Empire was actually Corinth. So Paul could say to this church, you are proud for the way you think you're so strong, but you're actually doing something that even the worst of the pagans in all of the Roman Empire don't do. A man has his father's Wow. But what was the point? Their response shouldn't have been arrogance. Paul says, ought you not to have mourned over this? There's our word, mourned. Wouldn't that be the right response to this sin? Mourning 
He tells them that they should deeply feel their moral poverty, their guilt, and they should grieve over it. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells this same church that if he visits them, he is afraid he will find some of them unrepentant. And so what will he do if he finds that? He will mourn. There's our word again. Because they haven't mourned over their sins. Let me give you a final example to prove this point and to illustrate it at the same time. In James chapter 4, the apostle, the elder, charges the people with a number of sins. He lists them. But he comforts them saying that if they will draw near to God, he will draw near to them. You see, the situation is one where sin has made a separation between them and God. Well, what ought they to do? What ought anyone to do when they sense a real separation from their maker? Well, he gives them several things to do, actually. But part of the answer is found in verse 9, James 4, 9. Here's what he says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Now, probably what James is thinking is Christ's words in the parallel account uh, in Luke 6 of this very passage we're studying. But even if not, his command matches precisely what is meant here. The point is this. The blessed person, the Christian, mourns over sin. He takes it seriously, and he even feels it deeply. Sin is not a light thing to him. It is a burden. Hence, Bunyan's famous depiction of a man still under his sin, carrying a huge burden on his back. The other people in that town that he lived in, they all had burdens on their back too, they just didn't know it. But he felt his. He mourned. And so salvation had come close. When God feels distant to a Christian, he knows that God's not the one who has moved. He has. And so he examines himself and he owns his sins. That is, he takes full responsibility from them. He doesn't blame shift. He doesn't say, well, if I hadn't been in this circumstance or that situation, or if you hadn't done this, I wouldn't. No, no, no. He owns them. He says, yep, they're mine. And then he mourns over them. And the effects of those sins in his life. The man who is in God's favor is characterized by grief for sin. He not only knows his lack of anything good in this life, but he also knows and feels his moral failures. He's poor in spirit, verse 3, and so he mourns for sin, verse 4. Jesus mourned 
over the sins of others. In Mark 3, Christ was both angered and grieved at the Pharisees' hardness of heart. You see, their sin wouldn't let them sympathize with a man who needed healing. And that provoked real grief in Christ's human soul. And so it should in us. We should not only grieve over our own sin, but mourning for sin in general should mark believers. So David could say in Psalm 119, verse 136, my eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Yes, it's right to be offended and even angered at other people's sins. Uh, we just described from Scripture Jesus' angry reaction to sin. But like Jesus and David, who we just quoted, this must be balanced with grief. Why? Why must it be balanced with grief? Because those sins are damaging the sinner. They're harming them. And you ought to have pity for them. Sin always leads to misery. And shouldn't we care about the harm done to fellow human beings? And in regard to ourselves, unless we also mourn, as well as feel offended at their sin, our anger at other people's sins tends to harden us like the Pharisees. Unless we genuinely sorrow over the sins of others, we will elevate ourselves in pride and be in a dangerous position. Now, I've been using the word mourn generally here, but it's important to recognize that not everyone who mourns does so out of a right relationship with God. Some weeping comes from mere self-pity. Some frustration, some sorrow, some grief, some tears come because the evil you want to do, you've been thwarted to doing it. You've, you've wanted to do something and, and very selfishly and, and God stops it. And you mourn over not getting that evil thing. Well, that's not this kind of mourning. That's a different kind. That's not mourning coupled with repentance. That's not godly sorrow for sin. So Cain, after being cursed for his murder of Abel, oh, he grieves all right. But what's he grieve about? That his punishment is too much for him to bear. Oh, poor baby. And yet we can be like him. That is a wicked grief, not a righteous grief. Judas mourned, but he didn't mourn with hope in Christ. It simply led to despair and self-murder. It didn't lead to blessedness. It didn't lead to God's approval. So not every kind of mourning is God-pleasing mourning. Mourning over sin is God-pleasing I think it's also important to note that there is a valid grieving over the miseries that sin brings. And 
This is part of the mourning, I think, in our verse. Because Christians weep not only for their own and other people's sins, but they weep because of the terrible effects that those sins bring. So when Lazarus died, Jesus wept. When he saw the funeral possession of a man who was the only son of a widow, he was moved with compassion, it says. He mourned. His spirit groaned, is a way to translate it, with the misery that accompanies death and the fall, from the fall. So we too should weep over the evil that wreaks so much havoc in the world today. Christians are not stoic in the face of for example, destructive tornadoes that take away dozens of lives, including children. We mourn knowing that sin has ultimately brought these miseries. I'm not referring to those people's personal sin. I'm referring to the fact that because Adam, the covenant head of the human race, sinned, that evil came into the world. And now it, it thoroughly characterizes <laughs> All of our existence. Well, this brings us to our third point. Finally, Jesus not only ascribes blessedness and tells us who these people are that are blessed, but he states the reason for this blessedness. He states the reason. In other words, he explains what this blessedness is as a reward. He tells us the content of the blessing. And this is found, of course, in the phrase, they shall be comforted. They are blessed because they shall be comforted. The word comforted means to be consoled, to be cheered, to be encouraged. Again, in the parallel passage in Luke, Christ actually uses the word to laugh. So the opposite of mourning is laughter. That's true in our experience. That was true in Jesus' teaching. So the Christian's Life is characterized by regular mourning over sin and the continuing comfort for that sin. You see, the blessing, the content of this blessedness is strong enough to fully meet the need that mourning brings. Notice quickly several things about these words. First, the certainty of the blessing. It says they shall be comforted. Just as those who are poor in spirit do gain the kingdom of heaven, so those who mourn over their sins will be comforted. And this phrase also tells us that mourning comes first and then comfort. This consolation is now for every believer, for every mourner of their sins, partially future. And of course it must be that way because it's a grace that comes with the kingdom and the kingdom is both now, present, but also future. And the blessings are grace is now, glory is later. The great present comfort that comes to those who grieve over their sins is felt forgiveness. If this is fundamentally a mourning over sin, and its miseries, the present
present comfort that comes to grievers is felt forgiveness. You see, there is great relief in knowing that our records are cleared by the blood of Christ and that our consciences have been sprinkled clean, Hebrews 10. This sense of knowing we are approved by God leads to happiness. We are blessed. Now, this forgiveness is, of course, complete and perfect in Christ. But our sense of it, this side of heaven, is not. It's not complete. It's not perfect. Real Christians sometimes doubt their forgiveness. Sometimes they simply don't feel clean. But then another comfort in this life comes to us, and it is this. That perfect blessedness is coming. It is coming with Christ's return. When we see him, we shall be made like him, sinless and without any more doubts or griefs. This perfected comfort will consist in the removal of all sin and its miseries from our lives forever. This is the great goal of the promise of God when he says, they shall be comforted. The consolation will be complete for sin in us and around us and all of the effects of sin in the universe. It'll all be removed. And so we will live away from even the presence of sin. It will trouble us no more. Grief will be unknown. We can't really imagine that. But in that new state, if there are tears, they will only be tears of joy. There will be no other kinds of tears. Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to streams of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Again, in Revelation 21, 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Really? Are you certain? Yes. Keep reading. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, there's our word, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Do you hear the emphatic repetition? The point is that every misery of sin will be removed. Every reason for mourning will be destroyed. And comfort, and only comfort, will fill our hearts and the rest of the renovated universe. How does all this come about? By the work of Christ the King. The following words immediately precede the prophecy of the coming of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ to announce the kingdom of God in Isaiah 40. Listen to them. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. That's a spiritual warfare. Because he goes on to say that her iniquity is pardoned. Comfort for 
those who recognize their sins, who mourn over their sins, that's why Jesus came. He came to bring comfort. It was the work of Jesus Christ to die for the sins of his people so they could be forgiven and know full consolation. They no longer have to grieve over their war with God because Christ had become their peace. They no longer have to mourn over their sins because they have been pardoned. Another example, Isaiah 61, tells us of how the Holy Spirit would rest on Jesus Christ for the purpose of anointing him to proclaim the gospel. And in the verses that follow, some of the benefits that come to those who believe that gospel are described this way. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion the oil of gladness. So every believing mourner is like that righteous man, Simeon, who's talked about early in Matthew. He was the one who saw the infant Jesus at the temple. What was he waiting for? It says he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the comforter to come. Now, we normally think of the Holy Spirit as the comforter, and that's correct. He is that. But when Jesus announced that he would be giving the Holy Spirit, how did he say it? I will give you a comforter? No, he said, I will give you another comforter. You see, Jesus Christ is the comfort of Israel. He is a comforter as well. The consolation is found in Christ. Indeed, it is Christ himself. Christ is the comfort of his people. And his perfections will one day make their comforts perfect. Well, that's the explanation of the, the text and some application, but let me give you three uses. First, we have in this verse a good reminder that the present Christian life doesn't consist only in joy. Now, the future Christian life will consist only in joy. But the present Christian life does not consist only in joy. Yes, it's true. We are commanded to rejoice always. But this verse teaches us that mourning over sin and its consequences also marks the Christian life. So you can be both joyful and sorrowing at the same time. Jesus doesn't need us to walk around with some kind of a silly, fake, plastic grin to prove that our lives are perfect, nothing ever goes wrong, and we never face sadness in this life. What a lie. <laughs> How foolish. Jesus didn't claim that our present lives would be without mourning. In fact, he promised us tribulation. And so let's be genuine. Let's rejoice with those who rejoice. And let's mourn with those who mourn. Let's obey him. 
Let's tell each other our struggles with sin and the other accompanying troubles so that we can pray for each other, so that we can bear one another's burdens. The present Christian life doesn't consist only in joy. It does consist in joy, but it also consists in mourning. The second uh, use is this. Let the truth of this verse inform your sense of, of assurance. Let the truth of this verse inform your sense of assurance. In other words, don't let your deep struggles with sin overthrow your sense of forgiveness in Christ. Let me say that again. Don't let your deep struggles with sin. And every real Christian has deep struggles with sin. Don't let them overthrow your sense of forgiveness in Christ if you are mourning for your sin. If there's a condition. <laughs> if you never mourn over your sin and you claim to be a Christian, um, please be worried. Please be concerned. Please don't take too much assurance. The mark of a Christian isn't ignoring your sin or pretending you have none or thinking of it lightly. It's rightly understanding it and mourning over it. I frequently hear people who say to me, Pastor, how can I be a real Christian if I keep committing this sin? I, I can't seem to conquer it. Perhaps I'm not forgiven. Perhaps. <laughs> but does that sin trouble you? Does it affect your conscience? Do you wish you were rid of it forever? And why is it grieving you so much that you are seeking my help with it? You're having to unburden yourself. Clearly, you're grieving. All of those are signs of one who is mourning for his sin in a saving way. Now, I, I'm not urging you to take these things lightly. Um, I don't want you to ever take sin lightly. I don't want to do that. But real Christians sin. And real Christians are burdened with sin. They, they can't throw it off as fully as they'd like. But in their grief over it, what do they do? They go to Jesus and he forgives them. This is why it is so important that we confess our sins individually and privately and corporately in public worship. Why? Because it's a mark of being a Christian. It's why we come humbly to worship, because a mark of a Christian is being poor in spirit. Why do we confess our sins every week? Because mourning over sin is a mark of a Christian. Occasionally you will meet someone who says, I don't need to confess my sins. They're once for all removed in Jesus. Well, let me say, I think that's a, a dangerous application of, of a doctrinal truth. Because besides being contrary to 1 John 1 and Romans 7 and the Lord's Prayer, 
It's the very opposite of what this verse says. This is not, blessed are those who mourned one time in the past and asked God to forgive them and never mourned again. That's not what this verse teaches. Blessed are those who are continually mourning and weeping and bewailing their sin, for they are now and will be in the future comforted. I hope you all find genuine help and comfort when God's pardon is read to you after we confess our sins in worship. I think this helps us to get a balanced and true view of ourselves in Christ and should help our assurance and not have it not be overthrown. Well, finally, uh, our, our last use is this. You must mourn for your sins for a short while in this life or you will mourn your sins forever in the next life. You must mourn for your sins for a short while in this life or you will have to mourn for them forever in the life to come. Those are the only two options. There are no other doors to pick or routes to go or ways to deal with your sins. You know, human beings love to avoid grief. And that's not wrong in and of itself. Part of that's natural. Part of that is very proper. But some avoidance of grief is foolish and even wicked. Because since sin has infested the world, there is grief. Sin has wages. They must be paid. There is no option for human beings to never grieve over sin. You either do it now by faith and repentance for a short time in this life, or you suffer grief forever in hell. Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6. If you think I'm being too black and white here, um, listen to Christ's words, which are more to the point. Blessed are you who weep now. So, you're approved by God and in right fellowship with him if you weep now and you will laugh. But woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. There's only two, there are only two options. You mourn for your sins now and get right with God and have no more mourning forever and ever or you avoid thinking about it and you don't face it and maybe it'll just go away. And all of the excuses we make for ourselves, no, it won't. Because God doesn't change. And he's a perfectly just God. And he will require this of you. And he will do that righteously. And then you will have to make payment forever and ever. So those are the options. You can agree with God now about your sins. And you can mourn over them. And if you do... A life of eternal joy awaits you with him in heaven. Or you can laugh at God now and the concept of sin and try to enjoy this life as best you can without him. That will lead to a life of eternal grief. Of indescribable horror, actually. Forever in hell. So, for those of you who don't know him yet... I hope 
you will see your need to face your sins and mourn over them and run to Jesus Christ, the one who can remove them. If you do, you will know blessedness now and perfect blessedness in the life to come. Let's pray.